Welcome to the April 22nd, 2021 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. In this week's edition, we consider the role of MYC and BCL2 copy number variants in double-hit diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Explore megakaryocyte-biased stem cells in JAK2-mutated myeloproliferative neoplasms. And finally, we look at long-term outcomes with emicizumab prophylaxis in patients with hemophilia, which are even better than in the first reports. Our first paper by Brett Collinge, David Scott, and colleagues at the BC Cancer Center in Vancouver is titled, The Impact of MYC and BCL2 Structural Variants in Tumors of DLBCL Morphology and Mechanisms of False Negative MYC IHC. When high-grade B-cell lymphoma with MYC and BCL2 and or BCL6 rearrangements, termed HGBL-DHTH and commonly known as double hit, or when all three alterations are present, triple-hit lymphoma, was first defined as a clinical category in 2016. Rearrangements were the only structural variant included. More recently, an atypical double-hit form has been proposed, encompassing tumors with concurrent MYC and BCL2 structural variants other than translocations, specifically copy number variations, or CNVs. While the identification of a shared gene expression signature among high-grade B-cell lymphomas harboring MYC and BCL2 rearrangements has confirmed a shared underlying biology, about half of patients with this gene expression signature and disease biology do not display concurrent MYC and BCL2 rearrangements. By fluorescent in situ hybridization, or FISH, whether copy number variation in MYC and BCL might confer double or triple hit biology was unknown and is the topic of the current paper. This team undertook a comprehensive analysis of MYC and BCL2 structural variants, as determined by Fish, in a cohort of 802 de novo tumors with DLBCL morphology. To determine the significance of the structural variants, the team also compared mRNA and protein expression in tumors with and without the variants. In tumors exhibiting MYC alterations, rearrangements in MYC were detected in 13% of tumors, Copy number gains in MYC were present in approximately 20 to 25% of patients, but did not routinely lead to MYC overexpression. For BCL2 structural variants, rearrangement was found in approximately 30% of tumors and copy number gains in another 30% of patients. In contrast to MYC, both BCL2 structural variants were associated with increased mRNA and protein expression. Since there is a strong association between a characteristic gene signature profile and double-hit high-grade B-cell lymphoma, a positive signature was used as a surrogate to assess whether CNVs in MYC and BCL2 might lead to atypical double-hit tumors with shared biology. However, this analysis revealed that MYC and BCL2 CNVs did not confer a gene expression profile similar to that seen in true double-hit lymphoma. Finally, the investigators looked at MYC immunohistochemistry, which has been proposed as a screening tool for FISH testing. They found that 30% of MYC rearranged tumors in the sample were negative by IHC. They identified two mechanisms that uncoupled MYC rearrangement from IHC positivity. First, low MYC RNA expression, and second, the presence of a single nucleotide polymorphism, 
designated MYC-N11S, in which an asparagine to serine substitution occurs at the 11th amino acid residue. This germline substitution appears to interfere with binding of the Y69 antibody used in IHC, leading to false negative staining. In summary, this investigation shows that BCL2 copy number variants produce aberrant expression, but MYC copy number variants do not, and that neither MYC nor BCL2 CNVs confer a similar biology as typical double-hit high-grade B-cell lymphoma. The findings also show that the MYC-N11S polymorphism is associated with false negative IHC staining, a mechanism of IHC negativity in MYC rearranged tumors. The authors close by noting that their results support moving from a category defined simply by the presence of gene rearrangements to one defined by the strong molecular biology that these rearrangements typically produce. In a commentary, Piers Blombery and Stephen Laid of the Peter McCallum Cancer Center in Melbourne, Australia, note that although additional work is needed to clarify the biological basis and outcomes of other pathways to double-hit lymphoma, the work by Collins et al. suggests that we have more or less reached the limit of fish to identify cases of true biological double-hit lymphoma. It has also become clear that a significant portion of patients harboring MYC translocations and increased MYC expression are negative for MYC staining by IHC. In the current study, the false negative rate was 30%. The team identified several underlying mechanisms contributing to false negativity, which reinforces questions about the suitability of using IHC to triage patients prior to fish testing in pursuing a diagnosis of double-hit lymphoma. They go on to posit that gene expression profiling, while currently only used infrequently, may be a better approach to identify this important subtype. Whether or not this ultimately proves a feasible option, the authors emphasize that to improve outcomes, one must accurately establish the patient's diagnosis with respect to conventional criteria, as well as molecular and biological phenotype. While the light microscope retains its relevance, there is clearly further work to do to optimize and effectively implement downstream technologies to fully capture double-hit lymphoma. We look next at a paper by Tata Rao at Switzerland's University of Hospital of Bern and colleagues under the direction of Radek Skoda at the University Hospital Basel, titled JAK2V617F and interferon alpha-induced megakaryocyte-biased stem cells, characterized by decreased long-term functionality. Myeloproliferative neoplasms, or MPNs, are clonal stem cell disorders caused by somatic gene mutations in JAK2, CALR, or MPL. Interferon alpha is currently the only treatment, apart from stem cell transplantation, that can induce molecular remission in a subset of patients with MPNs. However, the mechanism through which interferon alpha exerts this beneficial effect remains poorly understood. In their current investigation, the researchers used both animal models and samples from MPN patients to study a subset of hematopoietic stem cells, dubbed CD41-HSC, that are defined by elevated expression of CD41 and an intrinsic bias for differentiation towards megakaryocytes, or MKs. For the animal work, the team used several previously validated mouse models of JAK2 mutated MPN, including mice expressing transgenic JAK2V617F. They found that these mice with mutant JAK2 showed both an absolute and relative increase of CD41 high HSC 
compared to wild-type mice. Using single-cell liquid cultures of flow cytometry-sorted HSCs, they next showed that CD41-high HSC generated a higher percentage of MK colonies, whereas CD41-low HSCs generated more myeloid or mixed-lineage colonies. Applying competitive bone marrow transplant assays, the team demonstrated that CD41-high HSCs had impaired long-term repopulation in vivo compared to CD41-low HSCs, suggesting that CD41-high HSCs have reduced self-renewal capacity. Consistent with this hypothesis, CD41-high HSCs were more metabolically active and less quiescent, with higher cell cycle activity. Turning to humans, the investigators compared levels and characteristics of CD41-high HSCs in bone marrow of MPN patients with those of healthy donors. Consistent with mouse model findings, the percentage of CD41-high cells in MPN patient marrow was significantly higher, 20% versus 1% respectively, than in healthy controls. The team also found a correlation between the percentages of CD41-high cells in patient bone marrow and the corresponding JAK2V617F allele burden in peripheral blood granulocytes, suggesting that expression of mutant JAK2 might be primarily responsible for the expansion of CD41-high HSCs. The team next examined the responsiveness of MK-biased HSCs to interferon alpha exposure. After one-time exposure, the percentage of CD41-high HSCs increased significantly, in both wild-type mice and mice expressing transgenic JAK2V617F. After a 22-week course of treatment with pegylated interferon alpha, mice transplanted with a mix of wild-type and transgenic JAK2V617F marrow showed a marked increase in the proportion of CD41-high HSCs and a decrease in mutant JAK2 allele burden. Turning to humans, the team compared HSE numbers and CD41-high versus low phenotypes in peripheral blood of MPN patients treated by pegylated interferon alpha against patients on best alternative therapy. Again, they observed lower frequencies of phenotypic mutant HSCs in the interferon group. Based on this, the authors suggest that CD41-high MK-biased HSCs in myeloproliferative neoplasms expand at the expense of primitive CD41 low cells, and in turn, promote exhaustion of the MPN-sustaining CD41 low HSCs to reduce the mutant clone burden. In conclusion, this work demonstrated first that expression of mutant JAK2 increased the proportion of megakaryocyte-biased CD41 high HSCs that are less robust in maintaining long-term hematopoiesis, and second, that interferon alpha further accentuated this shift toward the CD41 high population, suggesting that continuous conversion of the CD41 low to high subset might be a mechanism through which interferon preferentially targets and exhausts the JAK2 mutant clone. In their accompanying commentary, Andrew Dunbar and Ross Levine of Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York City Note that MK-biased HSCs have emerged as an important branch point in human blood cell production. Some data suggests that these cells can exist at the top of the hematopoietic hierarchy and retain self-renewal capability while also being able to differentiate directly into mature megakaryocytes. Within this context, they observe that the specific lineage-primed HSC population affected by a somatic MPN driver mutation might influence the variability observed in MPN phenotypes.
Citing Rao et al. for providing a fascinating look at how MK-biased HSC subsets expand in the setting of MPN and are skewed in response to interferon treatment, Dunbar and Levine point to intriguing questions that remain. For example, in the general context of hematopoiesis, it is still unclear how MK-biased cell populations expand and or differentiate in relation to CD41 low HSCs. Furthermore, Despite showing that MK-biased CD41 high populations are expanded in MPNs, the fact that these cells appear to lose their self-renewal potential suggests that still unknown factors operating at the primitive stem cell level are required for the phenotypic variability observed across MPNs. In conclusion, the commenters observe that a better understanding of how MPN driver mutations in HSC subpopulations contribute to disease development and more important, how these cell populations can be influenced by disease-modifying therapies will likely have critical clinical implications. This week's final report is a paper titled Long-Term Outcomes with Emicizumab Prophylaxis for Hemophilia A with or without factor VIII inhibitors from the HAVEN 1 through 4 studies by Michael Callahan of Central Michigan University School of Medicine in Detroit and the international team of HAVEN investigators. Emicizumab is a bispecific humanized monoclonal antibody that binds to factors 9A and 10 to mimic the function of factor VIII. It is subcutaneously administered and used for bleeding prophylaxis in adult and pediatric patients with hemophilia A with or without inhibitors. Besides not being recognized by inhibitors of factor VIII, emicizumab's half-life is 30 days, in contrast to the 12 to 24 hours for factor VIII concentrates. The agent was approved on the basis of the four phase three HAVEN studies, for which the primary results have already been reported. As emicizumab is the first non-factor therapy with a novel mechanism of action approved for hemophilia A, Documentation of its long-term safety and efficacy is especially important. In this paper, data from 400 children and adults enrolled in the HAVEN studies were pooled to provide an update on long-term efficacy, safety, and pharmacokinetic profile. Data was analyzed based on 24 weeks intervals, with weeks 121 to 144 being the latest interval with robust pooled data. One-third of HAVEN participants are children and adolescents less than 18 years of age, and the remainder are adults. The total population is almost equally divided between individuals with and without inhibitors. Almost two-thirds of participants had target joints at study entry, defined as major joints in which three or more bleeding events occurred over a 24-week period. The median duration of follow-up for the current report was 120 weeks. Using pooled data between the studies, the mean annualized bleed rate, or ABR, for all bleeds fell from 3.3 in the first 24-week period to 1.0 in the final period. The fall in ABR included both treated and untreated bleeds, treated spontaneous bleeds, and treated target joint bleeds, which fell with each consecutive treatment interval. In the latest 24-week period, more than 90% of emicizumab subjects had zero bleeds, and more than 98% had three or fewer bleeds, across most bleeding parameters. Among evaluable patients with target joints, 90% had no spontaneous or traumatic bleeding into the joint during two-year follow-up. Remarkably, at the clinical cutoff, 
95% of the 530 target joints at baseline had resolved. In terms of blood product use, the annualized infusion rate of factor VIII fell by 30% in patients without inhibitors and declined modestly in patients with inhibitors. Consumption of factor VII in inhibitor patients decreased dramatically, falling by more than 80% over the two-year period. Use of activated prothrombin complex concentrates, or APCC, cannot be evaluated due to recommendations issued in the midst of the trial program against its concomitant use with emicizumab. For all maintenance dosing regimens, 1.5 mg per kilogram weekly, 3 mg per kilogram every other week, and 6 mg per kilogram every four weeks, achieved efficacious plasma trough concentrations above 30 micrograms per mil over the study period. Looking at safety, the most common treatment-related adverse event was injection site reaction. Serious adverse events occurred in 6 of 400 participants including three cases of thrombotic microangiopathy. All three of these and two of four thrombotic events were associated with concomitant APCC use, and all were previously reported in the Haven 1 primary results. The two thrombotic events not associated with APCC were assessed by the investigator as unrelated to emicizumab. One subject, who was over 65 and had previously undiagnosed coronary disease, experienced an MI. No deaths were observed beyond the one previously reported in the Haven 1 study. No additional participants withdrew due to adverse events during long-term follow-up. In summary, long-term emicizumab prophylaxis achieved persistently low annualized bleeding rates, including substantial reductions in bleeds into target joints and prevention of new target joint formation. In addition, emicizumab had a favorable long-term safety profile with no unexpected safety signals or new treatment-related deaths. In his commentary, Eric Parnes of Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston remarks that rarely do long-term findings exceed those of the initial study, as is now the case with the Haven trials. He cites among the most striking outcomes that bleeding rates for inhibitor patients are now on par with those of non-inhibitor patients. He notes that more exploration is warranted into why bleeding rates and target joints might improve over time. As possible explanations, he suggests that a decrease in bleeding events may lead to increased activity and an improvement in joint health, or that improved hemostasis may prevent recurring microbleeding and chronic inflammation in the joint space. Most reassuring, he says, is that no additional thrombotic complications occurred after restriction of APCC use. Lacking, however, is adequate safety data in those over 65 years of age and in patients with cardiac risk factors. Future data in this population will be welcome. Finally, he points to the low rate of antibody development to emicizumab observed with long-term administration. The authors are planning a separate update regarding immunogenicity, but the current numbers already suggest an improvement compared to traditional factor VIII concentrates which stimulate inhibitor development in up to one-third of those with severe disease. Dr. Parn sums up by noting that for patients and providers cautious about accepting new advances, the long-term data are reassuring. With two years of follow-up confirming its safety and efficacy, emicizumab should be considered the standard of care for severe hemophilia A prophylaxis in individuals with and without inhibitors. 
for a list of additional authors as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.